Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSellaCast podcast, hosted at PodFeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, November 4th, 2018, and this is show number 704. Well, I've only got two solo segments this week because we have to leave room for security bits, but um, I did want to tell the audience that the live show audience has gotten a very exciting episode so far. Uh, we normally start right at five o'clock. We got started about quarter after today because uh, Steve's 27-inch iMac sort of bit the dust and had to go to the table of sadness this weekend. He um, has been having some janky problems with it. It gets locked up from time to time. And he said, you know what? I'm just going to do a clean install of Mojave. And you know, I support clean installs whenever possible. So we erased his hard disk or he erased his hard disk and he did a full super duper backup. He had his time machine backup. And when we went to uh, install Mojave, it would kernel panic during the installation. So we did it from a mess, an SSD. We did it from a thumb drive. We uh, even tried using the recovery partition to do it and all of them kernel panicked. So he took it into Apple. They think it's the SSD. I'm smelling a little more logic boardy myself. But uh, anyway, that means he's been trying to run the live show from his 13-inch MacBook Pro. And it looks like that might be a teeny bit more than, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Mimo Live might be a teeny bit more power hungry than his 13-inch MacBook Pro can handle. So we are now doing a Google Hangout just like the old days. Anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting, at least for the live audience. So uh, you guys don't care. So let's get started with the show. Well, you know how sometimes forms on the web are super helpful, showing you nice green boxes around the fields you filled in correctly, and maybe popping up a nice little hint if you don't give it exactly what the developer was expecting. That method of, of highlighting things as you work on them and when you submit a form telling you whether you did it right, that's called form validation. In this week's Programming by Stealth on Chit Chat Across the Pond, Bart Bouchatz teaches us how to give the users of our forms helpful feedback with Bootstrap 4. If you'd like to learn more, subscribe to Programming by Stealth or the full Chit Chat Across the Pond feed in your podcatcher of choice. And of course, you can always listen over at podfeet.com and you'll also find a link to Bart's amazing tutorial there as well. I don't usually do a rundown on the Apple announcements unless I'm on someone else's show, but I'm going to make an exception this time because I did get to be a guest on the Daily Tech News show, but the format of the show doesn't really lend itself to a really lengthy discussion. It's a news show, so there's really not time to dig deep. Now, I'm not going to drone on and on like I normally do, well, maybe a little bit, but I do want to talk about what I thought was interesting. Let's start with the MacBook Air, and I'd like to start by being snarky. I know Tim Cook is an amazing leader and he's got huge value to the Mac faithful in so many ways, but sometimes his attempts at showmanship really look silly to me. When he started the announcement by flinging his arms wide and yelling, now with Retina, I thought that was really, really dopey. Of course, Apple needed to bring Retina screens to the MacBook Air, and I'm not unhappy about that. You've heard me say many, many times that I simply won't recommend the MacBook Air to anyone with that dreadful low resolution screen. But when he yelled retina, he acted like Tom Hanks in Castaway when he made fire. I looked up and, and the first time I looked it up and the first time Apple used the marketing term retina was on the iPhone 4. And the first Mac with retina is now actually considered vintage because it was introduced in 2012, six years ago. So I'm sorry, Tim, you don't get a standing ovation from me when you put it on the laptop six years later. You get an it's about time for me. Well, I think one of the most interesting thing about the Mac, things about the MacBook Air is that they gave it Touch ID without Touch Bar. 
two years in, I got to say, I don't really use Touch Bar very much, except for the things that would have existed on physical keys, like uh, volume and brightness of the screen. It was an interesting innovation, but I don't think it's a bad thing if it just quietly goes away. Touch ID, on the other hand, is transformative. If you use a password manager, you do use one, right? Anyway, not having to type in your long, complex password to unlock your vault is positively joyous on the Mac. Now, when they were talking about battery life on the MacBook Air, they said it would give you 13 hours of iTunes video playback. They did not say video playback. They said iTunes video playback. The reason I highlight this point is that it's a clear signal that Apple works to optimize their software for the least amount of battery drain. I've heard a lot of people talk recently about short battery life problems on their Macs when they're using Chrome, but then it turns out the battery life is fine when they use Safari. Now, I'm not not Google shaming here. I'm really not. It's just a cool thing that Apple does that we shouldn't take for granted that they work really hard to make things not chew up our battery. Now, Android is getting a lot better on battery drain, and with fast charging, it's not that big of a deal for them, but Apple manages to squeeze a lot more battery life out of the same milliamp hours. When the Touch Bar MacBook Pros first came out, Steve was looking to upgrade his aging 13-inch MacBook Air. The new 13-inch MacBook Air weighed 2.96 pounds, and the new 13-inch MacBook Pro weighed 3.02 pounds. So weight was absolutely not a determining factor in his decision between those two machines. The Retina display and more power for the same heft of a machine made the MacBook Pro the easy choice for him. Now, though, the MacBook Air has dropped to 2.75 pounds. I know a quarter of a pound doesn't sound like much, but that's more than 8%, and I can definitely feel the difference at 8%. Having a Retina screen with Touch ID and saving 8% in weight starts to look pretty sweet if you travel a lot with your computer. I also think it's wicked cool that the MacBook Air is made out of 100% recycled aluminum. As the keynote continued past talking about that, I kept wondering, where's all this recycled aluminum coming from? Especially when they said the Mac Mini was also recycled aluminum. Well, when they got to the iPad announcement, that's when they explained it. They make so many iPads The leftovers are enough to make the chassis for Mac Minis and MacBook Airs. That is crazy. Now we should address the speed. I am not a CPU testing uh, person, and I don't even spend much time studying the comparisons. But luckily, my research assistant, uh, Stephen Getz, is positively obsessed with this topic. He has explained that the new MacBook Airs have an inferior chip compared to what is in the MacBook Pros. He sent me an article from 9to5Mac that talks about the latest Geekbench test scores of the new MacBook Air. As the article explains, the absolute Geekbench score really doesn't tell you much about what real-world experience will be, but if you look at a comparison between two machines by their Geekbench score, you get an indication of their relative performance. Now, I don't want to repeat all of the statistics from the 9to5Mac article. I put a link to it in the show notes if you want to see all of the gory details. But the basic discovery is that going from the 12-inch MacBook to the previous MacBook Air to the new MacBook Air to the touch barless MacBook Pro is only a matter of very small incremental improvements in speed. Now, some of the models I just listed are the same speed as each other. A couple of them were 16% apart, and the most there was in that string of models I just said was a step up of 27%. But there is a huge jump in speed when you go to the 2018 Touch Bar MacBook Pro, which is actually double 
the speed of the 2018 MacBook Air. Now, with all that said, think about this. Bart creates all of his audio podcasts for Let's Talk Apple and Let's Talk Photography and records with me on my shows with a first-generation 12-inch MacBook, and he simply adores it. When I upgraded from a 2013 MacBook Pro to a 2016 Touch Bar MacBook Pro, I was unable to personally measure any speed increase in my real-world tests. Now, I'm including transcoding 5-gigabyte videos from ScreenFlow. I should say that the SSD was more than twice as fast in copying files, but the processor jump that should have been extraordinary made absolutely no difference to my daily work. So you can obsess over specs and Geekbench scores, or just get the Mac you can afford and is the weight you want it to be as long as you get one with Touch ID. Don't get a Mac without Touch ID. Just don't do that. Don't do it at all. All right. The new Mac Mini is an interesting little device because I think the product kind of serves two distinct audiences. When Steve's mom and dad were ready for upgrades to their computers, we looked at a few options. Steve's mom had a MacBook connected to a 24-inch monitor, and to be honest, she very rarely moved the MacBook from her desk. She had no big need for a laptop. On the other hand, Steve's dad had an old 17-inch iMac, and he loved it, except that it was really, really slow. Well, we considered advising them to get two new 21.5-inch iMacs, and even though they could afford the cost, it seemed like overkill for them. Instead, we opted for two Mac Minis, using his mom's existing monitor, which she loves, and getting a new 24-inch monitor for his dad. Their computing needs are very modest, and they love the speed bump they got, and they're super happy with them, especially for the cost. I explain all of that because the new Mac Mini is still the most affordable entry point Mac that Apple offers at $799 for the base model. That is a big jump in price from the $499 starting point on the 2014 model, but that's four-year-old technology in there. Starting with all SSDs and going from a Gen 4 Intel i5 to a Generation 8, going from dual core to 6 core, from 1.4 GHz to 3.6 GHz, these things are all huge differences. Did you also hear that it supports 10 gigabit Ethernet? Personally, I don't have a 10 gigabit uh, network, but if I did, I'd sure want to be able to fly on it. All right, let's head back to 9to5Mac to to see whether the Geekbench scores there tell us how big that leap really is. According to to 9to5Mac, the base Mac Mini single core score, the new one, beats every current generation Mac aside from the latest quad core 4.2 gigahertz iMac. Seriously. The Mac Mini beats everything but the 4.2 gigahertz iMac. It's crazy. It also said that, now that was in single core, the multi-core performance is actually in the range of the latest uh, Mac Pro. Now you know who the second audience is. Not Steve's parents, but professionals who need every bit of power squeezed out of their machines because every minute spent is money not made. I spec'd out a Mac Mini with the top of every single choice, upgrading it to the fastest processor, adding 32 gigabytes of RAM, and bumping the SSD to 2 terabytes, and then I threw in 10 gigabit Ethernet for grins and giggles. That brought the modest little $799 uh, Mac Mini up to $4,200 before Apple Care and tax. Again, when time is money, that's a tiny bit of cost with an amazing amount of power. Now, let's talk iPad Pro. Apple did something really interesting with the new model iPad Pros, or is it iPads Pro? Anyway, we wondered whether they would shrink the bezel and make the iPad smaller, or whether they would keep the same form factor and make the screen bigger. Well, they did both. 
The new 11-inch iPad Pro is the same physical area of the 10.5, but with a bigger screen. Now, you'd think that 0.5 inches isn't much, but it's actually a huge increase in area. Then, on the 12.9-inch iPad Pro, they actually kept the same screen size, but shrank the form factor considerably. Now, I ran the math, even though Apple told us during the, uh, during the event, and the new 12.9-inch iPad Pro is 24% smaller in volume and weighs uh, 9% less. Now, that's a really exciting change, at least for me. I think a lot, for a lot of people, this is going to make it even harder to choose between the two model sizes. Now, while size and weight are a huge factor, I think I'm most excited about having Face ID on an iPad. Touch ID rocks, but Face ID is even cooler. The speculation that Apple would only be able to make it work in portrait mode was completely wrong, and Apple actually leaned in when they made it work in all four orientations. That's going to be so awesome, plus Memoji on an iPad. (laughs) Am I right? Come on, Kaylee. We are so doing this. Anyway, I know people hate the speed comparisons, but it was pretty interesting when they said that the new iPad Pro is faster than 92% of laptops shipping today. Let's head back to 9to5Mac and see what the Geekbench scores actually say. Now, I was hoping that they would give us a comparison to some PCs, but they stuck to Mac comparisons. The new 2018 iPad Pro is as fast as the 2.6 gigahertz i7 2018 MacBook Pro in single-core performance. But the six-core performance on the MacBook Pro does beat the iPad Pro, but they say not by much. They didn't give the stats, but it wasn't by much. Now, I don't know much about metal, but if you do, you'll be glad to know that the metal compute score rose 40% over the previous gen iPad Pro. Now, I was fascinated by how little outcry there was when Apple swapped out the lightning port on the new iPad Pro for USB-C and removed the headphone jack. It seems to me that the initial outrage about USB-C has finally kind of fallen away and people see the advantage of it. I am curious about one thing, and it's obvious I just don't understand. When they were talking about external display support for the iPad Pro, they didn't say that it was uh, Thunderbolt 3 on that USB-C port. I'm a bit confused because my understanding was that you need Thunderbolt 3 to carry the HDMI signal in order to drive that display. I double-checked the tech specs on iPad Pros, or iPads Pro, and it definitely only says USB-C, not Thunderbolt 3. I can't wait to see if I can drive my LG 5K display, or perhaps my 27-inch Apple Cinema display, via DisplayPort from my upcoming 12.9-inch iPad Pro. I got enough adapters and docks around here. If, it can, if I can drive one of those, I will make it go. Now, I haven't talked about it much here, but my love for Apple Pencil has actually dried up. I'm no artist, as you well know, so my main use for Pencil was with the awesome third-party keyboard MyScript Stylus. Sadly, the developers declared it end of life, and they have no plans for keeping it going, so I haven't been able to use my Pencil to do that ever since. But if you are a Pencil pusher, you'll like the changes. Looking back on the first Pencil... The number two pencil, as Rene Ritchie of iMore hoped it would be called, is so much more logical. Magnetic, yay. Wireless charging, yay. And it's flat on one side so it doesn't roll off the table like it used to. Since you never have to plug the pencil into the side of the iPad, which really, let's be serious, looked like an accident waiting to happen, you don't have to pull a cap off that the cats are going to find and hide from you. At least that's what happened in my house. I do have to confess that I wasn't paying attention when they explained why you'd want to tap on the pencil, so I'll wait till I get mine next week to figure that part out. 
Yeah, of course, I bought the pencil because I got to play with it, even if I don't need one. It was also interesting to me that one of the selling points of iPad Pro is that it's essentially a giant battery pack. The 11-inch model has a 29-watt-hour battery, and the 12.9-inch has a 37-watt-hour battery. Now, remember when we ran through the math to figure out whether a portable battery could charge a laptop? I'm not going to go through all that again, but here's a, here's a uh, data point for you. The 12-inch MacBook has a 41.4-watt-hour battery. If we assume uh, 72% efficiency, which is what we came up with before, you could get a 64% charge of that 12-inch MacBook with a 12.9-inch iPad Pro. Guess that's to be expected, though, since the iPad Pro is actually bigger than the MacBook. You'll definitely be able to top off your phone with an iPad Pro when you need to, but you'll have to be careful not to plug it in, anything into it, when uh, you don't want to drain your iPad Pro. I know we don't do a lot of, uh, uh, you know, connections between things like that, but you got to be careful. Don't plug anything in. You don't want to be sucking battery out. Now, my friend Dean said once that it's really hard to justify your first Apple purchase, but it's really easy to justify your second and your third and your fourth. I have to wonder whether the new pricing of the Apple gear might keep people from opening the door that very first time. The entry-level iPhone used to be $350 for the SE, but now it's $450 with the iPhone 7. The entry-level Mac Mini used to be $500, but now it's $800. The 11-inch MacBook Air started at $900, but now the lowest-cost Mac is the old model 13-inch MacBook Air at $1,000. There is one place you can still get a great device that's actually a new model this year, 2018 model, that's the 9.7-inch iPad starting at $330. The weird thing is, it's actually significantly less cost than the iPad Mini 4 that was introduced three full years ago. So the lesson is that if you want to convert your friends to the truth and the light, the answer is to start them off with a 9.7-inch iPad so they don't have to sell a a kidney to join us. You know, they're going to need that kidney later when they buy their second Apple device. These days, we seem to be plugging more and more things in our computers. Sure, we have sleek, thin laptops, but when we sit at a desk, it's great to have a big monitor, lots of real USB-A ports, and have a way to charge our devices. If you're over the top like me, maybe you need to plug in microphones and extra cameras as well. In January, I treated myself to a Belkin Thunderbolt 3 dock to hook up all of my devices. You know, I have this great tendency, I buried the lead in and put it all in a post entitled Thunderbolt Docs, just because you can plug it in doesn't mean it will work. I want you to have to work to find my content, right? Anyway, that was actually a review of a Belkin Doc. If I didn't want to do that, why else would I name my site, my flagship podcast, Complete and Utter Nonsense? Anyway, the Belkin Thunderbolt 3 Doc works great and I have no complaints. But recently, a company called Excel, that's A-C-C-E-L-L, asked me if I'd like to test and review their Thunderbolt 3 dock. At first, I thought there wouldn't be much to talk about with a dock, but I was wrong. Let's think about the criteria for a good dock before we jump into the comparison of the Belkin and Excel offerings. I would suggest that you would care about the following things. The right connectivity to your computer, in the case of modern Mac and PC notebooks, that would be USB-C. You would want one single cable from your notebook to the dock. You'd want the ability to charge your laptop through that one cable. You'd want USB-A, Ethernet, and more USB-C ports that carry Thunderbolt 3. You'd want connectivity to the kind of monitor you have, either DisplayPort or HDMI, depending on your needs. 
You'd want it designed in a way that keeps your desk as neat and organized as much as possible with the plethora of devices you want to hang off of it. And you'd want to spend the least amount of money possible. I think that's a pretty good list. So let's start, start with the cost and work backwards. Currently, the Excel Thunderbolt 3 dock is running $300 on Amazon. However, if you look closely, after clicking my Amazon affiliate link, right below that $299 price, there's a checkbox next to the word coupon. If you check that box, no coupon numbers required, the price will magically change to $250. Now, I'm not sure how long this coupon's going to last, but my contact at Excel said that it was a holiday coupon. So I don't think you need to drop everything to get it. Don't waste your time. I mean, don't waste time getting into it. In contrast, the Belkin Thunderbolt 3 dock I purchased is priced at $335, which is actually $35 more than when I bought it originally. We've got a win for the Excel desk, uh, dock on price, saving you $85. Let's switch gears and talk about connectivity. I don't want to just list out all the number of ports on each dock because you can look up specs on your own. I'd rather kind of describe my use case for each dock and how well they worked for me. The Belkin dock has most of the connections on the back, but it also has a uh, USB-A port and a headphone jack on the front. Oddly, it also has a headphone jack on the back. It would seem to me that having those two ports on the front would be handy, so you don't have to hunt around the back for the odd need, but it kind of leaves cables hanging straight out onto your desk, and it's not as clean as it should be. Excel decided to put two USB-A ports and the headphone jack on the right-hand side of the dock. That makes them just as accessible as on the Belkin, but you can sweep the cables backwards so they don't make the desk as messy. There's also a microphone jack on the side, a microphone in jack on the side, but I don't really have a need for that. I said I wasn't going to count out ports. I wasn't going to count out ports, I should say, but the Belkin has three total USB-A ports while the Excel has four. For me, that one extra USB-A port made a huge difference. With the Belkin, I was one short, so I had to hang a USB 3 hub off of the dock to have enough ports to plug in all of my USB devices. That added clutter in my desk, and that's exactly what I'm trying to eliminate. Since it was a USB 3 dock, it also caused interference with my 2.4 gigahertz network until I moved it to a different side of my desk. With the XL, I was able to decommission my USB 3 dock, at least until I find something new I need to plug in. I should mention that the LG display that I have has four USB-C ports in the back, so it can be used as a hub. When I needed a new backup drive, I bought the Samsung T5 SSD as USB-C, so that's another reason the USB hub could be decommissioned. Now, both docks have a full-size DisplayPort connection, so I could drive my 27-inch Apple Cinema display from either one of them. You know, I've moved my uh, my studio three or maybe four times during all of this construction. I found I, I it was just too hard to use my second big monitor. And you know what? I don't actually miss it. That really surprised me. Uh, I, I, was, I was surprised at that. So I'm probably not going to start using that monitor on top of the uh, 5K display. Now, both of these docks have full gigabit Ethernet, of course. Now, both docks have a USB-C port that supports power delivery. They also call that PD. PD is required to be able to charge your notebook via USB-C. Now, the Belkin has an 85-watt power supply, while the XL only has a 70-watt power supply. For a 13-inch MacBook Pro, that's just fine, but for my 15-inch MacBook Pro, it's going to charge slower than with my standard 85-watt power supply. That doesn't really matter to me, though, because I tend to leave it plugged into the dock for extended periods of time, and I've never seen a problem with it. I'm charged to 100% pretty consistently. 
Now, Belkin supplied a one meter USB-C PD cable, which is a perfect link to connect uh, my MacBook Pro to the dock. But for some reason, Axel only included a half meter long USB-C cable, and I actually can't reach from the dock on the left where I want it to go to my Mac on the right hand side. So I cheated and I used the Belkin dock while I, the Belkin cable while I was doing this review. Now, both docks have a second USB-C port, which works perfectly to drive the video signal to my 27-inch LG 5K monitor. Both of the, the docks have lights on the front that let you know they're powered up. Not really sure why that's so important, but if you like a good blue light on a device, they both have you covered. Let's talk about the bottom line here. I think the best thing I can say about the XL dock is that I was really sad that I had to send it back. It's not amazingly better than the Belkin, but that one extra USB port and having the ports on the side makes my desk so much less cluttered that I was in love with it and I was sad to see it go. If you're in the market for a Thunderbolt 3 dock for your PC or Mac, I can definitely recommend the Axel Thunderbolt 3 docking station on sale now for $250 on Amazon. You can check out all of the tech specs and more at axelww.com. Hey, I just got a uh, notification from Dave Ginsburg who tried the uh, Amazon affiliate link that I put in the show notes to get the XL dock and the coupon was gone. I am going to get a hold of my contact, try again in the next couple of days, and uh, the coupon should hopefully be back. I will tweet and Facebook group and and better yet, Slack the information uh, when I find it. But uh, she said it would be up, so I don't know why it disappeared, but stay tuned for that. Well, speaking of my Amazon affiliate link, whenever I tell you about a product on this show, I try to find it first on Amazon. I figure it's the easiest way for you to shop, and you know, we're all pretty lazy now, so bring it to us, right? It also allows me to encourage you to shop on Amazon, and if you do it through my links, a small percentage will go to help fund the production of the Podfeed podcast. Now, my links are all to the U.S. store, but if you hear about a product and you want to buy it from the U.K., Canada, or Germany stores, you can go to podfeet.com slash Amazon to find links to your favorite store. I made the uh, the page using pretty flags of the countries just to entertain myself. Stephen Getz helped me find the flags. Anyway, you can also go to podfeet.com slash funwithflags to go find those same Amazon stores if you like to giggle and think of Sheldon and Amy Farrah Fowler. I so appreciate all of you who do this. It does make a huge difference to the show. In fact, I'd like to do a special shout out to Canada for their support of the Podfeet podcast through Amazon. We finally reached the threshold to get a check cut cut this month from Canada Amazon. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchotts, everybody's favorite part of the No Silicast. How are you doing today, Bart? I am doing grand. Well, I'm ignoring the Irish weather and the fact that it's winter again and the fact that we're on winter time and it's dark and icky. I'm ignoring all of that. I'm grand. So I probably shouldn't mention the part that I had to wait to take the dog on a walk because it was 82 degrees outside and it was too hot. <laughs> <laughs> Alison, this morning was the coldest of the winter so far. It was minus two air temperature when I left the house. Oh, my gosh. That's horrible. This is why God sends earthquakes to us is because of jerks like me torturing people like you. (laughs) Well, it's on average. Everyone has to deal with nature being evil. So you can either have it as, you know, insects that bite and kill you or the ground shaking or the weather being wet. You can have it some which way, but you're not getting away without it. That's just how the universe works. Right, right, right. 
All right. Oh, um, I did want to bring up something uh, just out of out of school here. We've been chatting mm-hmm. in our Slack group. I'm talking to everyone else here um, about how how best to manage channels in Slack. So the one argument is don't have a lot of channels because then people have to jump between the channels to see what's happening in each one of them. And it's not really mm-hmm. obvious what, when channels exist. So you have to know to go look for a channel. It isn't just going to be revealed to you when it gets created. Um, but on the other hand, it's kind of nice to be able to segment off certain topics. So we created one for programming by stealth because it's it's kind of a niche topic. A lot of people love it, but not everybody wants to hear about JavaScript problems or something. It seems like kind of a nice place for Bart to be able to see questions and help with answers and, and me to pretend I know something. Um, but we're at a crossroads on security. So I think security mm. should just be part of the mainstream because I think most people care about it. But Bart, your side of the argument was... Well, basically, if it's a, the way I would see a channel as being, if people would realistically want custom notification settings, then it warrants a channel. And so I think people may want to either intentionally tune in or intentionally tune out the security stuff. And therefore, I would suggest it makes sense as a channel. So what I've done with PBS is I have set notifications on PBS to be email me anytime anyone says anything. Mm-hmm. And on the general channel, I have it set to say, email me anytime anyone mentions a few keywords or me. Okay. And I suggested the keywords could be security or security bits. Which, yeah, I mean, security I have as a keyword as it happens, but it's extremely generic and extremely catch-all. And it's not, it, it gets a lot of false positives. And also it doesn't allow people to tune out the security. It could get a lot of false positives. We don't know yet, do we? I think we already had one where someone was talking about like a front door or something. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess it'll it'll depend on how chatty the Slack gets to some extent on that, That's right? That's true too. Yeah. It's right now it's um let's say last call, I think it was ninety four people had joined, which is pretty cool for such a young uh, little little network we have going there. Um I'm I hate to say it, but I love Slack. <laughs> I really I'm, I've come around. I really, really like how it works. I, I, I've gone the opposite way. I've gone from being a big Slack fan to someone who hated being on Microsoft Teams, which is what we use in work, because Teams started off as like a poor man clone of Slack, like just a Me Too product. But Microsoft have really put effort into it. They're on a weekly update cycle with Teams, which is amazing to watch a company as old and stodgy as Microsoft be so nimble and dynamic. It's kind of like, wow. Th- th- this Satya Nadella guy does think differently than that bomber chap. <laughs> and what's happened now is that Teams has, to me, evolved to become a much stronger product. And Slack, I'm disappointed in how little it's changed in the sort of the, the five-year Don't hiatus. Don't talk people out of Slack. Actually, I think you're a big old Microsoft fanboy is what I'm noticing. We're going to start calling you uh, Microsoft within, Bart. <laughs> within boundaries, there are things they now do very well. And then there's still the old Microsoft from time to time as well. Um, I, I, I am very much on both sides of that one. Like, Okay. Well, I guess... Yeah, yeah. they're still Microsoft sometimes, but they, they, the services stuff, the cloud stuff they're doing, the stuff basically Satya Nadella was doing before he became CEO, I'm really happy with Microsoft's attitude 
Cool. It agrees with cool. me. I mean, the reason I like Apple stuff is because Apple's sensibilities align with mine, mm-hmm. and Microsoft's cloud sensibilities align with mine. So I like what they're doing. It, it's not, you know, it's not a religion. It's the other way around. When companies align with my likes, then I like the company. It's not. I don't align myself to the companies I like. I got you. I got you. Well, back to the security bits question. I guess I'd like oh, people yeah. to tell me what they think. Um, of course, Bart, my vote is more than anybody else's. Um, but uh, well, your vote is more than anyone else's. I think. <laughs> well, yes, I have the uh, I have the magic keystroke to make this true or false. Uh, but I would like to know what other people think because I I don't want to have a, a a cluttered up chat, but I also don't want people to miss stuff because they don't realize that Security Bits even exists as a as a channel. I'm more worried about people missing stuff right now than I am. And, and about the longer not- term, I guess there's the worry about people leaving because they're feeling overwhelmed. Right. 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 So I'll just so give one, one closing argument, right? Okay. So wh- why is security bits at the end of the show? Because I'm afraid nobody will listen to me if I put it at the beginning. <laughs> well, I thought it was so that people would have the option not to listen to us get all deep and nope. nerdy. And nope. so maybe, maybe nope. for That's that a, logic, the same. I don't know what they would do if it was the other way around, but I'm afraid nobody would listen if it was at the Oh, beginning. no. <laughs> I've actually thought about spinning it off as its own show, but I'm afraid nobody will listen to the No Cellicast, so that's why I don't do it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the problem is we're both we're both thinking that the other the other person's contribution is the good part, so uh that's pretty funny. Well, I stop listening once you finish because I know I know what I said. <laughs> Okay, so we might not be the right people to vote. Anyway, we we'll we'll put the question out. We've been chatting about it in uh, in Slack, and a lot of people are saying they really would like to have a security bits channel. But my contention is they just really care about security, not that they care about a security bits channel. So I don't know how to divorce the two of those. Well, it'll be interesting to see to see what people have to say. Yeah. Anyway, why don't we get started? Let's get tucked in, as they say. Okay, so the first thing we'll do is a little bit of follow-up. And, Alison, you were going to clean typos as you go. So it yes. turns out when you take I see the that very tag, first one. <laughs> yeah, so I have a little script that sucks out the title tag from web pages and uses it as the link text. And it turns out that uh, Bloomberg do some nasty SEO stuff and fill it with absolute glop. <laughs> I was looking at that, trying to figure out where is the actual thing. I've got it fixed already. All set. Yeah, that's a horrible, isn't it? I'm going to have to fix my script now to have a special case if site equals Bloomberg. <laughs> I hate that. Anyway. Speaking of so Bloomberg. The, the, yeah, so speaking of Bloomberg, so Apple, the last time we spoke, we were deep in the controversy of the Bloomberg big hack story. And not we don't really have any more facts since then. And that in itself may actually be worthy of mention. So... We said last time that it was very suspicious that if oh, there's all of these chips out there in the world spying on everyone, why has nobody found a single chip? And that was already true two weeks ago, that it was suspicious. Well, it's now another two weeks and still no one has actually found one of these hypothetical chips. So I'm going to you know, do my best. Um, uh, ah, What's his face? The guy with the paradox about aliens impression and say, where is everybody? <laughs> Well, yeah, I I am, of course, completely suspect. I immediately believed Apple and didn't believe Bloomberg, but um, just because I'm, you know, fanatical. But I listened to people who at the beginning were saying, wow, this is really hard to tell who's right, Apple or Bloomberg. And now they're going, 
Yeah, more would have come out if Bloomberg was right. This smells funny now. And, and these were people who were, you know, even giving the benefit of the doubt, saying that Bloomberg's probably right. There's no way this wouldn't be true because Bloomberg is Bloomberg. But it just feels like something went terribly wrong in their process. It does. And Apple have continued to double down on on pushing back, basically. So Tim Cook, the only real development since we last spoke is that Tim Cook has actually called for a retraction. I believe so Amazon it, might have too. Well, they followed suit, actually. You're right. Yes. Yeah. Um, a, few, a few days later, Amazon were like, actually, do you know something? That's a good idea. I think you should retract it. <laughs> I'm surprised it took yeah. so long. Yeah. Uh, some other follow-up news. Uh, the United Kingdom has fined Facebook £500,000 over the Cambridge Analytica scandal. So that's probably about 10 seconds worth of profit. But hey, it's the thought that counts. Wow. And the co-author of the Mirai botnet that caused such trouble has been uh, sentenced to six months confinement and a $6.8 million fine for an attack he did against the university. 8.6 million. Yes, indeed. I got that completely backwards. A little dyslexia goes a long ways, but six months is all he got confined to? Yeah. Wow. Huh. Yeah, courts don't take this cybercrime stuff nearly so seriously as they, they argue t- we should. $8.6 million dollars in fines just means bankruptcy and move along with your life, right? I think so, because he's a fairly young chap, so I don't think he has that money just sort of lying <laughs> around. Yeah. Okay. Ah, yeah. So anyway, so that there are follow-ups. So um, some notable security updates that have broke since we last spoke. Um, Apple have released updates for, as far as I can tell, everything. Um, looking through the list is just even the Windows people get to play along with iCloud updates. Whenever uh, that happens, now, I always hear Ken Ray in my head saying, it's update a go-go. And the music comes on and, yeah. we, and we all dance. Anyway, um, yeah, no, Buddy Eyes in September. Anyway, um, <laughs> I've seen some people reporting that Apple have pulled the update watchOS 5.1. Uh, and they reported that a few days ago. Right. And then there's not been any follow-up on that reporting. But on Apple's site, the update is there and it's available. I, c- I can't so, get it. Okay. That's interesting. Okay, so the, the, there appears to be something It may be back, but when I ask, is my is my watch available to be updated? It goes, nope, you're up to date. La, 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 And la, you la. have a four. Yes. And okay, it, was, oh, it was the four that was affected. You haven't said what the problem was yet. Well, yeah, so the the reporting is that some watches were being bricked and then the reporting sort of crystallized a bit to say that it was Series 4 watches that were being bricked. And with the Apple Watch, you can actually say bricked because Apple's response was, okay, send it back to us, we'll give you a new one. Yeah, yeah. and But uh, supposedly they had a fix in the works that was going to fix it. But the, the bricking is you're stuck on the Apple logo. I don't know how you get out of that. Maybe wait well, basically, for the thing to die. Basically, you need some sort of factory equipment. Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming Apple can refurb them and turn them back around. But unlike a regular computer, you can't... What normal rubber chicken waving can you do to an Apple Watch, you know? So it yeah. is kind of send it back to Apple and let them deal with it. And in fairness to Apple, whenever this kind of thing happens, their response is always, here's our support page, log a ticket, we will give you a new watch. It's like, okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, your update broke it, you fix it, fine by me. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mozilla have updated Firefox to version 63. Uh, the usual um, improve, you know, the usual patches of security vulnerabilities, which go almost without saying. 
But also their release notes draw attention to the fact that they have added some more smarts to their anti-tracking protections. So like Apple, they are continuing to try to add more and more intelligence into the browser and the cat and mouse game, they're basically continuing to try to become a better cat. And of course, the advertisers are continuing to try to become better mice. (laughs) And so we can expect this to continue. But I I always like to see in Firefox release notes that they're continuing to make their browser better in this regard. So I yeah, think it's a good thing. I installed this one just the other day. We were having a weird problem that Steve and I could not get to podfeed.com on Safari, but Firefox would let us in. And then it got huh. better. <laughs> what was going? It was oh. probably a coincidence, but we fired up Firefox and there were 63. So we uh, installed the update. So that was fun. Huh. Well, I've, um, I recently nuked and paved all of my Macs. Good for you. Same thing to do at the same time, by the way. Just saying. Are you glad you did it? I I did it. I just went. I I said, are you glad you did it? On balance, yes. Um, Mm -hmm. And my Firefox is way, way faster without 10 years worth of plug-in cruft. Oh, jeez. It's been 10 years? Or more. Wow. I don't think I'd ever started over with Firefox. Even when I'd nuked and paid my Macs, I had always copied over that Firefox folder. Oh, and this time I have copied over about three apps. I've basically realized that everything I care about is in the cloud. Yeah. And yeah. I have copied over almost nothing from... In fact, my data is all in the cloud too, between OneDrive and Dropbox and everything. So I actually didn't even copy over my documents folder. I basically just... I'm getting to that ut- nirvana where there's nothing on my computer. It's just a portal into the cloud. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Steve is actually about to do it because his iMac is starting to get real weird. You know, you get to the point where, okay, I could spend 15 hours trying to diagnose this or I could spend 14 (laughs) (laughs) starting over, but be certain that when I'm done, it's either hardware or I fixed it, one or the other and and cleaning things up. You know, it's just it just it feels like you went on this great diet. It's a it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful feeling. I'm really happy I did it because whenever something does go wrong and things are still going wrong for me, I can say I didn't do it. Clean install. Not me. Not me. Not Not this time. In a few weeks, it'll be my fault again. But. And also, it was a good excuse for me actually moving all of my documents to the cloud. It was a good excuse to just throw out stuff that I was keeping because I was too lazy to figure out if I needed to keep it. Well, then I don't need to keep it. Then I haven't done that. I've never cleaned out my documents. Yeah. Yeah, Basically, I had everything on my iMac, and now everything is up in OneDrive. Only not everything, because that was just a waste of bandwidth and effort. So I basically just went through everything. Everything but my my, uh, photos and videos, you know, it's like, you know... 100 megabytes. <laughs> well, I still had, I had, just because I'm paranoid, my Aperture 1 library when I oh. upgraded to Aperture 2, and my <laughs> Aperture 2 library when I updated to Aperture 3, and my Aperture 3 library when I switched to Lightroom. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. There you that, that, I'll give you that one. Yeah. Yeah, I thought so you gone meant like, like this letter to my uh, accountant from, you know, 1997. It's like, okay, you get rid of that, it's like three bytes, right? Yeah, the, the great thing is I always name my files year, month, day, dash, mm. some text. And so I basically went, if it starts with a, with a one nine, I don't care. Huh. I'm just afraid there's like a letter to my brother or from my brother or something like that. I'm, I can't do it. Not in mass. I suppose. Yeah. I did very quickly scan through the names and I didn't find anything vaguely interesting apart from a whole bunch of, oh, why on earth did I keep that? I mean, really? <laughs> anyway, we digress. Firefox 63. Yes. 
Um, to those of our listeners who use Drupal as to run their website, which is it's, it's after WordPress is probably the second most common content management system out there. Um, again, it's open source. Uh, they have released critical security updates to address arbitrary code execution vulnerabilities. Basically, mm. this is as bad as it gets. And mm. they, they sort of put out their big auga auga on this update. If you run Drupal, you really, really, really do need to apply these patches. And really, you should do it yesterday, if at all possible. Okay. So that brings us on to notable news. Um First interesting story, uh, so some researchers at the University of Michigan and the University of Michigan Children's Hospital uh, did a study on apps aimed at children, games and educational apps, basically, and they, they went to the Google Play Store. So this, right, they, this research was done on the Google Play Store. That does not mean there is no problem on the iOS store. It just means that this research was done on the Play Store. So okay. this research can only answer questions about the Play Store because it can't answer a question it didn't ask. So there's no right, neener so. neener in this story. This is just a story. This is just a story. Just, you know, okay. I'm saying Google Play because that's where the research was done. And I will say that given Apple's proactive review process, this is this you is likely to be less of a problem on iOS. But I would not for a moment assume zero of a problem. And we also don't know whether it's a problem or not. And we also don't know. So I'm basically saying it is my educated guess that this is less common, but I think the the, the takeaway should be the same. You know, parents, you have some homework to do. So I, don't but anyway, you, we'll get to I, I interrupted you before you said what they found. Yeah, so the, the, they were analyzing basically whether these apps, and they, they took very popular paid apps and very popular free apps, and they'd analyze the advertisements within those apps. And specifically, they went for apps that were branded, or not branded, that's not the word, um, tagged Mm -hmm. as children zero to five. Oh, okay. So that's very young kids. And they analyzed the ads in a number of ways. Firstly, were they just being tricky? So were they full screen ads with the teeny tiny close button that vanishes in a second that the kid would easily assume was part of the game and then of tapping on and buying things? So were they designed to be confusing was one of the criteria. And then another thing they looked at was uh, whether they were using cartoon characters and things kids would like to try and market at them, which is, of course, extremely insidious and not at all an appropriate thing to do. And then they also looked at um, whether the ads were advertising things completely inappropriate to children. Hmm. And, and what they, they were also doing that. They, oh, so they so found all of these things were there? Yes, all of these things are there is what it comes down to. Often 95% seven? of the 135 apps studied had at least one of these problems. And these were the most popular free and paid games? Yes. Oh, geez. Targeted at children aged 0 to 5. Oh, wow. On the Play Store. By the way, uh, listener Dr. Marina Appleman is a, uh, is a professor at the University of Michigan. Hi, Marina. Cool. <laughs> she is very cool. Um, so basically, my advice is... If you're a parent of a child, play through the game before you hand it over to your kid and then yeah. make up your own mind. Yeah. And I think that advice holds an iOS too. So, you know, I think it's just, I think it's basically just good advice. Yeah. Uh, so this, I'm almost afraid to call this news, but uh, believe it or not, there's another lock screen bypass in iOS. We're at Again, 237 the, of them so far. Yeah. And... The problem basically is when you try to make a colander, you accident, you often poke more holes than you meant to. Um, <laughs> and that is what's going on here, right? The Apple are intentionally poking holes in their security. And, well, sometimes the hole is bigger than you thought. Or you accidentally made two of them. You went through two layers at once or something. So 
Hmm. It's kind of par for the course on these kind of things. So I would say that this is a moment in time to make an educated decision. Actually, I should say that the sky is not falling, right? The only thing this bypass gets an attacker is your contacts. Now, if you have, you know, the president of America's private phone number, then that is actually a big deal and you need to protect that. But for most of us, this is an annoyance, not a catastrophe. So it's not sky is falling territory, but it is a timely reminder to pause and take stock. So I would say to everyone, now is the time to open your iPhone, go to settings. In the settings, go to either, it'll be called either Face ID and Passcode or Touch ID and Passcode, or I guess if you have a very old phone, just Passcode. Um, and it will ask you for your passcode because this is obviously a setting you don't want people to be able to get to without um, doing anything else. And then scroll down to nearly the bottom and you'll find the section labeled Allow Access When Locked. And there's a whole bunch of radio buttons here or toggles here. Make an informed decision on each toggle. And I'm not saying what to decide. I'm just saying actively decide whether you think it's worth convenience over security in each of those. Hmm. In my case, I've decided that because Face ID is so good at just unlocking without me thinking about it, I have all of mine turned off and I don't find it a hindrance thanks to Face ID. I used to have them all turned off with Touch ID and I found it an annoyance, but I still felt better not having my lock screen exposed. So I decided to accept the annoyance, but I have to say with Face ID, it's much less annoying. I'm glad you brought this up, Bart, because I've been meaning to go try that because it it didn't occur to me that with Face ID, you look at your phone and you're going to be able to have access to these things. There's yeah. no, There's really no motivation to have them visible with Face ID because you just look at your phone. And if you're going to do the, the only thing is I sometimes do Siri without looking at my phone, but I can I go. do it on my watch more often than anywhere anyway. Uh, and I've been meaning to turn this off. But while you were talking, I was looking for it. I, was like, I can't remember where that is. It's under face ID yes. and passcode. Yeah, I went to looking because I didn't remember either. So I went to hunting and actually I had always had them all turned off. But of course, with the new iOS 12, a new setting appeared for home. Uh, allow home on yeah. lock screen. I'm and that was sure default to on. Yeah, I just noticed that. I'm pretty sure I don't want that. Yeah. It's going to be I mean, that could really cause trouble. You leave your phone behind and all of, suddenly your house is possessed. <laughs> lights blinking on and off. Right, the poor dog and cats, you know. And people looking at the camera. Uh, if, if you yeah, have a camera. Of, I don't know if you do. I don't think, no, the only HomeKit camera I had was that stupid one from D-Link that they never updated that I, I got rid of. Yeah, okay. So, okay, in your case, not a problem. But for other people, it would be a problem. Yeah, maybe. There's not many HomeKit-enabled cameras. <laughs> That's the bad news. Right? Well, that is going to change over time. Anyway, so there you go. So there's, like I say, I'm not telling people what to decide. I'm just telling people that this is the kind of thing you should actively decide. Don't just accept the defaults. Make an actual informed decision and decide for yourself which way you want to take the trade-off. Okay, good. Uh, you should be aware that... Security researchers have discovered being used a new type of way of sneaking malware into Microsoft Word documents. So we're used to the idea of malicious macros, which is why Word will give you a little pop-up that basically says, I've turned off macros because I don't know where this document came from. Do you want to turn them on? And if you got an email to you, you probably would say, actually, no, thank you, Word. I'll leave those macros off, please. Uh, But you're used to that kind of idea that malware can sneak in through a Word document. Well, it turns out that you can embed web videos into a Word document 
And you can then manipulate those embedded videos in such a way that you can run arbitrary code whenever someone views the Word document. And here's the kicker, without any kind of security warning or pop-up or yes-no confirmation, absolutely positively nothing, you simply view the document and the malicious code executes. And the real kick in the teeth is that Microsoft's attitude is there's no problem. (laughs) What? Yeah, they're saying, oh, no, no, there's nothing wrong with their HTML parser. It's parsing the HTML from the remote website just fine. Which to me is a non sequitur of an answer for a start. Yeah. I don't know how long this will hold, this attitude, because last year they ended up disabling a whole bunch of embedding features after spending six months saying there was no problem, they just turned them all off and made everyone, made some people cranky and most people happy. They're, hmm. they're probably going to be forced to take some sort of action if, if this becomes really heavily attacked in the world, and I don't see why it wouldn't. But anyway, the takeaway for our listeners is you should always have been suspicious of opening anything that gets emailed to you unexpectedly. But uh, Office documents now get an extra flag because there is now a mechanism that can be used to embed malicious code into these quite easily. Now, we haven't said this recently, but I'm going to say point out exactly how Bart said that. Bart said, received unexpectedly. He did not say received from someone you know or don't know, because it has nothing to do yeah. with that. People always go, oh, well, don't don't open things from people you don't know. It's like, no, Bart could accidentally send me something that's malicious. It's just that or- you just if I didn't expect him to be sending it. Right. But it's even worse than that, because email is like a postcard. The from address is just written there. It mm. is not in any way, shape, size, or form validated. I right. can send emails pretending to be from god at heaven.com. <laughs> right, right. I got an email so from So the a, apparent from... sender... Go ahead. Yeah, the apparent sender is meaningless. So don't, don't factor it into your decision-making. It doesn't matter who it looks like it came from. It could be from anyone. If you're expecting... Uh, a copy of the annual report from your colleague and a copy of your annual report arrives from your colleague, that's probably fine. If you're not, it doesn't matter if it's from your colleague or not. Don't trust yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. I get a lot of uh, emails from people saying that uh, they have found a dead link on my website. First of all, really? I'm shocked. <laughs> 13 years of blogging. Yeah, imagine all of those links to all of those products that I have made over the last decade and a bit. Right. And I have no intention of going back and fixing it and fixing them. I don't care what no. it does to my SEO. I'm just not doing it. Anyway, so I, I got one from a vendor that I've done business with before, and it was pointing at some article from like, I don't know, eight years ago and saying, well, you know, you could look at our product instead. And it was this link to this download this file, you know. And and so I just wrote to the guy in a separate email and said, so your email got hacked, right? And he's like, no, no, that was for me. I want you to try this product. I said, in a million luck, years, I was nice. going to click that. I mean, now I will because it looked like a fun product. It was an FTP product, but still, I don't care if I do know who it is. I'm not going to click it. Yeah. All right. Yeah, exactly. And you're, you're, you're very good about always giving people the advice that if you do need to go to some sort of website based on some sort of email, you type the address into the address bar yourself. Yeah. You don't click on a link. It doesn't matter even if it looks perfectly legitimate. Just why do that? Go type it. You can type. Go type it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, Now, so this is the Bloomberg tech people writing about about technology, this next story. So it actually seems like a legitimate story, which I now need to say about Bloomberg. It's not their Washington office writing about tech. Oh, I didn't know that. The... the, the, um 
chip thing? That wasn't their tech group uh, doing that? No. No, it wasn't. Oh, I didn't know that. We did talk about that last time. I'm sure time, we actually. did, Bart. That doesn't mean I And you had exactly anything. the same reaction, which I thought was great. <laughs> yeah, it was a Washington bureau. It was their, politicians, their politics people writing about tech, uh, which is never a good combination. Uh, okay. Anyway. So this is their tech people writing about tech, and this seems like much more sound reporting. Basically, Bloomberg are highlighting a new trend which is being, adver- is being advertised as a feature in products being sold to developers. It's called uninstall trackers. So using various clever tricks, and the tricks differ from platform to platform, but they have found a way of doing it on every platform. Um, these code libraries, the, for want of a better term, that you can buy into as a developer allow you to be notified when someone uninstalls your app so that you can remarket as the buzzword they're using at them. In other words, you can attach to someone's identity on an advertising platform the apps that they have uninstalled and then use that to try pitch your competing app or to try pitch them an alternative app that you make or whatever. How would that work? I don't understand. How would they know if I uninstalled something? Okay, so the... The specifics vary from every app store. Okay. But when an app cleans up after it's when you want to install an app, it has to clean up after itself. And in the act of cleaning up after itself, the the operating system says to the app, dear app, is there anything you need me to do? And effectively, it's like an event in JavaScript. Okay. And the app goes, yep, going to phone home. Yeah. And there's various mechanisms for getting around various protections and the, the subtleties differ. But the concept is there is an event called delete yourself <laughs> and if you install this framework into your app you can use that to ping back home to the the framework servers so these basically these are products that developers buy for the purpose of tracking and which is something that lots and lots of apps do anyway um, and this is just an extra feature they offer in their tracking app sorry they call it analytics my bad <laughs> tracking sounds evil analytics sounds fine they're the same thing but anyway so that that doesn't make any sense to me. Here, uh, Bart, I sold you these pair of pants. You wore them for a while, and then you decided to give them to the to the Salvation Army. I think I should try to sell you those same pants. But it doesn't have to be the same pants, right? If you if if, if you could try sell me something else, you know that you know that I'm not interested in blah. So maybe try me on the competing product, blah. Okay, competing product. I thought you you said to remarket. Well, no, it could be the same, the same company, right? The same yeah. company could have a whole range of products. So they basically say, oh, you didn't like that one. Okay, well, let's try you with this one. Right? You didn't like that okay. game. How's it about this game? Uh, it's not or, terrible, We're sorry it? to see you go, if you want to be yeah. a bit more blatant about it. How's about we sweeten it in this way? Is it terrible? It's, it's not terrible, but it's basically another cat and mouse game because the the obvious conclusion here is that these the app stores are now going to try to protect their users from this kind of thing by tweaking their APIs and tweaking the terms of service and tweaking the review process. And then this particular current implementation may or may not go away or may or may not become more or less powerful and then they'll find some new way of cheating and then there'll be another. So basically a new cat and mouse game has begun, I think is, is sort of what it boils down to. It just depresses me that they keep on finding ways. You know, this is why you can't have nice things. <laughs> yeah, right. Now, Apple have done something to their App Store, which I do not comprehend. I, I cannot see a reason for this making any sense. But anyway, up until now, in the App Store, 
Developers could choose to highlight specific in-app purchases, but regardless of whether or not the developer highlighted one or more purchases, the App Store would have a little collapsible drop-down to let you see all of the possible in-app purchases so you could make an informed decision before purchasing. Right. It's gone. Apple have removed it from both Mac and iOS app stores. And this actually stopped me buying apps a few days ago because the two apps I was interested in both said, you know, uses in-app purchases, and I couldn't see how much I would have to pay to get the no ads and the pro features. And I was like, well, then Hmm. sod off. Neither of you are getting my money. I'm not. I'm. I'm not jumping in blind. So is this part of? Uh, we heard recently that Apple has really been pushing developers that this uh, this whole subscription thing is the cat's meow, and this is another way of, or uh, you know, in support of that, hiding it from us. That seems really sleazy. That seems utterly counterproductive to me. If if Apple think the future is in app purchases and subscriptions, then they need to be more transparent about it and more obvious about it. So to me, I I just don't get it. It's almost like someone made a mistake somewhere and a hmm. box got unticked or something. I cannot comprehend. I don't. Normally, I can see why, even if I disagree. In this case, I'm just like, nope. Yeah, I don't. I don't get it. It's just not. So helpful. it may come back. Yeah. But if you're thinking you're going nuts because you used to be able to find this information and now you can't, it's not you. Because that's what I thought. Until I saw yeah, the news stories. Like, you know, oh. everybody, including me, is looking into, you know, I'm going to find a game or, a, you know, an app, and I want to be able to see whether that's in there. The thing is, if the developer chooses to highlight one or more purchases, they will still be listed. Oh. But only the ones the developer chooses to highlight. So you can never tell whether what you're seeing is a full list. Hmm. Anyways, I don't get it. Yeah. Now we switch to the good news column. Um, For reasons that I don't understand, uh, when the Digital Millennium Copyright Act in the United States was created, um, actually, could you copy and paste an American flag in front of this story? I should have put one in. Um, The person responsible... So the rule basically says you're not allowed to break DRM except for a list of rules which will be regularly updated. And the person responsible for updating those rules on a regular basis is the Librarian of Congress. So the Librarian of Congress gets to decide what DRM is legally circumventable and what DRM is not legally circumventable in the United States. Anyway, that time has come and gone, so we've had a new set of DMCA rules. It has now become legal to circumvent DRM in order to repair a device and restore it to its original functions. Yeah, that's that's crazy. I'm trying to remember there was one downside to that. Oh, it's not legal... For someone to, it's something like it's not legal for someone to teach you how to do it, though, or to give the tools to do it. Like you have to develop oh, the ability. The you have to develop the ability yourself. That, are you sure that's about this repair one? That was certainly was, case previously with exemptions for getting around copy protection. It was just this last week. I thought that was what it was, but no, huh? I'm not sure. Uh, the okay. DMCA is full of stupidity at every corner that I certainly wouldn't rule out that there is more stupidity that I wasn't aware of. <laughs> okay. Not going to rule that out. But you know, on the whole, as you know, as these rules changes go, some years they giveth and some years they taketh away, and this year falls in the giveth column, I think. Okay. Also in good news, now the details on this are for a really good reason very sparse. 
Apple have killed the grey key iPhone hacking device, and they haven't said how. They killed it? And I don't think they're going to, because killed this is the ultimate made cat it, and mouse game. Made it ineffective. Yeah, so they've put something in to the latest versions of iOS, which stops it doing its thing. Okay. So what they did, we will probably never know. But it's interesting that Apple are proactively protecting our security because, of course, if a grey key can break into an iPhone, any bad guy who finds the same security hole can break into an iPhone. So it's really important that Apple keep this stuff patched because the real danger that is uh, threatens all of us is cyber criminals and we need protection from cyber criminals. Yeah. And then also in the good news column, and you asked me to pop this story in, although to be honest, I would have popped it in anyway. Sure. Um so we've known that Apple have this thing called the T2 security chip in some of their more recent computers for some time, and we've known some things about it, and they're all kind of cool. So an iOS device has always had this cons- this kind of a secure, well, not always, but for a very long time now has had a security chip. And these chips, they're a hardware one-way valve on encryption keys. So you can put a key in, but you can never get it back out. All you can do is hand the data and tell it to encrypt it. Okay. Or you can give it a private key and you keep the public key and you can tell it to, you know, encrypt things with that private key and then you can use the public key to decrypt them and vice versa. So it's a very secure mechanism for storing encryption keys. So it's very important for stuff like really secure disk encryption to have that one-way valve and it's done in hardware so that no, no software bug can break it, no... No getting root helps because it's in hardware. And so we've always known that that was cool about those chips. And so they enable secure boot, uh, which means that an operating system has to be digitally signed by Apple for the device to boot it, which means it's it's impossible for a bad guy to inject malicious copies of Mac OS X and stuff like that. I mean, there's lots Hmm. of really great advantages. We've known about that kind of thing since the T2 came out. Okay, But now we know more because Apple have updated their documentation to say that as well as all those things we already knew, the T2 on their laptop computers contains a physical hardware disconnect on the microphone, which means that if you close the lid, the microphone is physically disconnected from (laughs) the logic board. So it is impossible for any malware, even if it gets full system privileges, to enable your microphone behind your back if the lid is closed. So there's closed like a little lever? Off. There's a little lever yes. that lifts a lid? Uh, well, that thing's going to get disconnected accidentally, don't you think? <laughs> it is going to be a thing that needs repairing at some stage on someone's Mac, I would assume, yes. It's an actual you need a mechanical... new T2 chip because your microphone is permanently off. It's a mechanical switch. That's amazing. Because that is, to be honest, the only way to have something be physically secure completely, like utterly, totally and completely in a digital world is for it to be mechanical. And they say that there is no similar switch on the camera for a very simple reason. When the <laughs> lid is closed, the camera's field of view is obscured, is how they put it. Right. Obscured. <laughs> yeah, it's looking at metal. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder when they're going to start putting the T2 chip in the iMac. I would imagine that that will, I, I'll tell you when, when the iMac gets Touch ID. Well, that's when we'll know they put it in. Uh, no, we'll know sooner because when someone tries to boot from some sort of custom firm, some custom OS, someone tries to put Linux on their Mac and it won't boot, we'll know. 
Right. But I mean, when we get Touch ID, we'll know that it they have the T2 oh, yes, in there. Oh, yes, sorry. It's not that the putting it in will make it exist. It's They'll have to mm. do them at the same time. They could put yes, in the T2 will, because, without course, it, but that wouldn't be as fun. Yeah, you could do a T2 without Touch ID, but to do Touch ID in any way securely, you need that T2's one-way valve because the T2 stores your your biometric data, but will never... You can put biometric data into a T2, and you can put test signals into a T2, but the only thing ever to come out of a T2 is thumbs up or thumbs down. <laughs> puns, you can never get the biometrics there, out. It can be index Pardon? finger up or index finger down. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, uh, Stephen Getz and I were talking about he's debating whether to get a new MacBook Air or the touch barless MacBook Pro. And I was mm. telling him, I so the, the MacBook Air has a chip that concerns him that it might not be as good as the the other chips in the in the, the uh, MacBook Pro. And I was telling him, I said, well, if if the chip was ten percent slower in your phone, or you had to lose Touch ID, which would you choose? So I'd go ten percent slower. I said, right, get the one that has the Touch ID. That's the transformative one. To me, that's a no brainer unless you're an abnormally heavy CPU user. Like, our modern CPUs are all so fast. I mean, you know, even the little... I mean, everyone scoffs, oh, the stats on the 12-inch MacBook are terrible. Yeah, but you know something? Even the, you know, the slowest computer Apple make these days is more than fast enough for most people just about all of the time. Like, right. Don't get caught up in stats. Your computer is about how usable it is, and that includes very, very much Touch ID. Oh, oh so very much. I, I would... I would give up quite a lot to have Touch ID on my Mac. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's it, one of the things I don't think you, you think about is it's not just for opening your Mac because he, you know, his point was, well, my watch already does that for me. Mm. Yeah, that's right. But guess what? You don't have to type in your one password almost all the time. Like every once in yeah. a while it'll go, yeah, no, you haven't done it in a really long time. You need to do it now. But most of the time I launch one password. It says, give me your fingerprint. I say, okay. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I am a heavy 1Password user, and my 1Password is extremely long. Right, right. And I type that in extremely often. Yeah, yeah. They make you do it just often enough you don't forget, so it's pretty good. But oddly, the one thing it doesn't work for is um, your Apple ID. You have to type that in all day long, no matter what. I don't know why. really drives me bonkers. It does. It's like Apple's website on Safari goes another way to stop you pasting into the Apple ID password field and and yeah, Apple So ID. does Microsoft. Com. Microsoft doesn't let you do it either. The uh, I hate that. Yeah. <laughs> Jerks. Just don't use Safari and go with a different browser. Problem solved. <laughs> but like, Wait, anyway. why? Why would a different browser solve that problem? No, no. As in the website, Apple. If you go to the the Apple ID website, Safari will not let you paste into the website to log in with your Apple ID. Okay. Uh, but I wonder whether Microsoft would let you do that because uh, when you first launch um, the Microsoft products right after you install, it, you have to enter your password and because it has to go online and see if you really have a valid license all the time, I, it makes you put, you can't paste it in. Their little yeah, pop-up yeah. window I, thing. I, I intensely dislike people going out of the way to make password managers diff- more difficult to use in the name of security. <laughs> so you're going to force me to have a memorable password or make me write it down in the interest of making me more secure? Yeah. You what now? Right, right. Anyway, that takes us to suggested reading. Um, 
Lots of stuff in here. I'm not going to draw your attention to all of it, but um, under PSA's tips and advice, just to let you know that we have how to see and manage keychain passwords on your iPhone or iPad from the Mac Observer. That is good to know if you use iCloud Keychain. Um, a nice article from Tidbits about using third-party password managers on iOS 12, since that has now become so pleasing on, oh, on this new iOS. Wonderful. And a special message to our American listeners. If... You are an American, and if you care about net neutrality, and if you plan on voting, there is a link to a website which will allow you to tell which of your Congress critters are pro and anti-net neutrality, and you can then use that fact to factor into your decisions when you pull the lever, as they say. Oh, neat. So, basically, fact-based voting. I'm a big fan of fact-based voting. I don't really care what opinion you come to. Just think about it first, and then, then I'll be happy. Um, in terms of notable privacy breaches, the only thing that sort of p- pinged my radar in these two weeks is 81,000 hacked Facebook accounts up for sale on the dark web. Um, Facebook have said that it, they're, they're, very, they're pretty darn sure it wasn't compromised directly from them. It would appear to be from keyloggers and similar malware catching the passwords on the user's end as opposed to on the Facebook end. And I guess on the grand scheme of things, 81,000, yawn. Which is terrible. <laughs> Horrific that we've ended up with that being the case, but that kind of is the case. Uh, well, in, in uh, Canada, uh, a company called Stat, StatsCan, it was, uh, they were tasked with collecting, analyzing, and securely storing personal data about Canadians in the census, and they lost hundreds of sensitive files during the census. Oh, geez. Now it's only oh, hundreds, no. but it was you, know, you had one job. That was that was all you were supposed to do is keep that safe. Yeah, I guess nope. it could have been worse, but yep. Yeah, uh, lots of stuff in news. I'm not really going to pick any of those out. Um, opinion and analysis, though, I am going to pick one out. Um, Word we we mentioned Drupal earlier, but WordPress is 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 king of the hill when it comes to content management systems, particularly free open source ones that, that are popular use on the web. According to some analysts, one third of websites use WordPress. It's ridiculous that one product is used so much across the web. But that of course means that Facebook or not Facebook, um WordPress's security team have a very difficult challenge. And there's a sort of an interesting analysis of WordPress's approach to, the, to that, because at the moment, WordPress actually backport their security patches. So only their security patches to every version of WordPress since 3.7. They're now on 4. Point something or other. So every time there's a security update, they backport it to all of the auto-updating versions of WordPress. Wow. And they won't auto-update between major versions. So if you're on 3.7 point anything, you'll stay on 3.7 point anything. If you're on 3.8 point anything, you'll stay on 3.8 point anything. And so they keep having to do multiple copies of each security update, and it's becoming unmanageable because as they go forward in time, there's ever more old versions. (laughs) Yeah. And so they're, they're, they're in this real dilemma, and it's just an interesting analysis of their thinking about it. It was a big topic at the recent WordPress conference. Um, it's just it's an interesting article. So as I say, it's an opinion and analysis, because it's not news, but it is interesting. So, Was there any reason why people wouldn't upgrade? Yes, because when you go between major versions, the APIs are allowed to change, so things may break, particularly if you the more customization you do the more things will break because you're relying mm. on so basically the the major versions give you api stability and so moving between them changes apis okay 
but yeah, on the whole, if you're only using third-party plugins and those third-party plugins are not obsolete, then you should be able to roll forward. But of course, there's a few ifs in there. Yeah, but on the whole, if you if you stick in the if you stick to maintained plugins, there's no reason. Okay. Okay. But that is not a universal truth. Right. People do not do that. I, I just I don't know. I've never had patience with people who stay on old versions of you know I don't know. Neither do I. You have to eventually anyway, just do it. That would be my opinion too, but I guess the WordPress people are going, as as the purveyors of a third of the internet, we have a responsibility that perhaps other people don't. Yeah. I can see, you know, my, my gut feeling is exactly the same as yours, but I'm not the head of security for WordPress. That's probably a good thing. Because <laughs> I just say, cyber Darwinism, let them all die. <laughs> <laughs> We're rough. Yeah, they'll learn. <laughs> exactly. Um, or be gone. Or be gone. Yeah, problem solved either way. Uh, <laughs> a bunch of stuff in Propeller Beanie this week. One of them actually I'm just going to highlight to people who want to dig in deeper. So we talk a lot about cat and mouse games, or we certainly have this week. Um, but the ultimate holy sort of the the, the, the the not the silver bullet that every advertising tracking company wants is some way of uniquely identifying a browser that the user can't change and can't delete. So that therefore, you have this unremovable super cookie is sort of the nickname we've given it. And anytime they find one, like browser fingerprinting. The browser vendors find a workaround, like in the case of the latest version of Safari, lying. Um, Safari sends a homogenized uh, browser blue, uh, browser fingerprint so that all copies of Safari effectively look the same. And so you can't use the fingerprint to track people uniquely anymore. Very clever. Right, right. So, of course, the tracking companies are now on the hunt for a new super cookie because they can't use that one because Apple have fixed that. Apple has fixed HSTS. And we've talked a few times about these fixes in Safari. So the next cat and mouse is going down a level to the actual TLS protocol that powers HTTPS because, of course, we're now having HTTPS everywhere. So why not use HTTPS to try track people? So TLS has a feature called Session Resumption which means you don't have to renegotiate keys every time you revisit the same HTTPS website, which is a massive improvement in performance, particularly for the web server, but also for each individual client. But of course, that means handing out a ticket, which is a permanent piece of information like a cookie, and some websites allow those tickets to be valid for weeks. We now have a super cookie. So it looks like browsers are going to have to start getting more clever about how they handle their TLS sessions. They're going to have to decide half an hour is all you get or something. Right. Whack-a-mole. So again, it's, it's, it's you know, the cat, the the mouse has found the new weapon and the cat needs to adjust. So the details are in there for anyone who wants to dig in. It's under propeller beanie for a reason, because the, the... The minutia of the TLS protocol are, um, yeah, propeller. Anyway, that's that's all I want to draw your attention to. But like I say, there's lots of stuff and suggested reading for people who, who want to know more. All right. Does that take us to our palate cleanser? It does. I have one palate cleanser, which I was hoping would be something really up my street, if you'll excuse the pun. Unfortunately, this one is for Americans only. So... I'm the kind of nerd who wants to know what symbols mean. I taught myself the meaning of railway signals because I wanted to know what those different lights and different shapes meant. Uh, 
Okay. And I learned about the Irish signaling system, including stuff like uh, the feathers for in- for direction indicators and the calling on signals for shunting and all the minutiae of Irish railway signaling, because I want to know these things so that when I'm standing in a station, I know what's going to happen. And I know the Belgian one too, and it's completely different. So as you're out walking about on the street, you will notice that whenever there's any sort of construction work, there are all of these different colours and different shapes spray-painted on the pavement. Right, right. They have really important meaning, and they came about because literally a guy with a digger in Venice Beach killed a bunch of people by striking a gas main. It's actually Culver City, right? That's where uh, Culver City, yeah, where I, I used mean, to it's live. A big disaster. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. It says, uh, yeah, your article says it leveled half a city block. Jeez, hit a petroleum it was a high pressure gas main. Yeah. Wow. So that sort of woke everyone up to this concept that maybe we need some sort of standardized way of marking these things out on building sites. And so there's a whole set of rules. So the colors all have a meaning, right? So orange versus yellow versus green versus pink, they all mean different things. And the shape of the arrows on the lines, they mean different things. And the things that are written, they mean different things. And unfortunately, the whole of America has a standard set by ANSI which is what's described in the link in the show notes. So Americans can read that and understand what is written on the streets from now on. And they can say, oh, there's a gas main under there. It's at four meters deep. Hmm. Unfortunately, it's not standard across the world. So this is useless to me. No. But I figured since I can't have it, I'll share. <laughs> That's really interesting. Just a fun little, uh, fun little, this I also know. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I like and I, I just love, I like to know how things work. And so... <laughs> It's exactly the kind of thing I want to know. Uh, I do have one thing to say before we uh, we close out here. In okay. case you were thinking of telling us whether or not you would stop listening if Bart was at the beginning, <laughs> I don't want to know the <laughs> answer to that. <laughs> I've purposely never asked the question. Don't ask the question you don't want to know the answer to, right? <laughs> Oh, because say unless you want to tell Alison that no, no, of course I'd listen. In which right? Case you oh, can yeah, tell her. Sure. yeah. You can tell me that, but I want to hear from anybody who feels the other way. <laughs> anyway, I guess we will talk to you in another couple of weeks. You will talk to me about security in another couple of weeks, and you'll talk to me about nerdy, geeky programming stuff in another well, few tens of hours. All right, sounds good. Talk to you soon, Bart. Until then, stay patched, stay secure. Well, with that, that's going to wind us up for this week. We did survive on Steve's 13-inch MacBook Pro and uh, doing a Google Hangout, so we're uh, we're agile. We can uh, we can roll with it. We did manage to do the live show. We didn't keep the kids uh, too late after class. It's only uh, 6.02, so we did pretty good. But it is going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions. I haven't had a dumb question in a, in a while, at least not a dumb one I could answer. You're supposed to send me the easy softball ones, not the hard ones. Anyway, something you think is too stupid to ask, but I bet somebody else has the same question. Send it on over. You can also send comments and suggestions. You can email me at allison at podfeet.com. You could send me comments on Twitter at podfeet. And remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com slash whatever you want. You want to join our uh, our Patreon? Go to podfeet.com slash Patreon. You want to talk to us in our Facebook group? Podfeet.com slash Facebook. You want to join the new fun, shiny uh, Slack group that we have going? We have, uh, last I checked, it was like 94, 95 people have joined already. Podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join the uh, chat room, uh, Discord, that's podfeet.com slash chat. 
If you want to find those Amazon affiliate links, where do you go? Podfeed.com slash Amazon. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time. Watch the sausage get made with the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.